If someone is in a hurry and they want things to move faster, they probably need to be in a technology business. And so if if one of my kids is is not patient and really wants to make something happen much faster, I'm going to tell them to go to technology, but then they're going to work twice as fast and three times, maybe three or five times faster and harder because time doesn't stop for technology companies. Yeah. Manufacturing businesses, even real estate development, we can't we can't make them go much faster. You know, if it's going to take 18 months to build a big apartment complex, it's going to take 18 months. But technology, you know, you can shift stuff to India and China and work around the clock with three teams and you can go three times faster. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into The Fort. I'm excited to have a good friend of mine, Sanjay Tandra, on the show with me today. Sanjay and I have known each other Oh, probably three or four years. Um, Sanjay has been an equity partner of Fort Capitals for many of those years. And um, we have a business relationship, but we've also built a personal relationship. He is one of the smartest people I know. Um, so I think today's episode will be super interesting. He is currently the founder CEO of Trinity Private Equity Group um, out of South Lake, Texas. And welcome to the show, Sanjay. Oh, thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Just jumping right into it, can you describe kind of your story early on and your family's story of coming uh, to America? Sure. Uh, Chris, you know, I am I was born in India. I was born in the state of Uttar Pradesh, which is one of the neighboring states to um, New Delhi. It's a little bit like being in Virginia versus Washington, D.C. I was born there, and um, when I was two, my father came to the U.S. to do his master's in Oklahoma. Of all places, he'd never been to America, had never visited the campus, but he came to do a master's uh, degree, leaving my mother, my brother and I uh, back in India for a year. As soon as he graduated from OSU in industrial engineering, he got his first job across the border in Gainesville, Texas, and immediately brought uh, my family over. So, you know, I came over at the age of three, my brother was four, and he was still, uh, he and my mother were still relatively young in their late 20s. But after the first job that he had in Gainesville, we ended up settling in Dallas-Fort Worth. And so I grew up most of my childhood in Grand Prairie, which is a southern suburb of Dallas County. Went to, to high school uh, there. My brother and I were pretty good students. We were probably the only Indian people. Maybe I think there was one other Indian person that I remember in all of South Grand Prairie, and it was a big 5A high school. Uh, but he and I ended up becoming back-to-back uh, -back valedictorians in 82 and 83. And he went off to A&M, and the next year I went off to the University of Texas. And so we were both 
you know, strong students and became Boy Scouts and both became Eagle Scouts and worked typical jobs in fast food and in movie theaters and throwing papers. And uh, it was a pretty, pretty standard blue collar type area. And so we had a middle class upbringing in a, you know, in a lower associate demographic of Dallas-Fort Worth. Yep. You kind of came from an engineering family or an engineering background. I think you were in engineering college, correct? That's correct. So I, I ended up um, doing my degree at UT in electrical and computer engineering. My father had dual engineering degrees, and my brother, just a year ahead of me, uh, went in and did a chemical engineering degree. So family of four engineers, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> three engineers, I have one son and two daughters, and he has one son and one daughter, and both our sons are mechanical engineers as well. Is an electrical computer engineer still a thing, or was that just a product of your time? No, it is actually still a thing. I'm um, I'm involved in the School of Engineering at UT as an engineering advisory board member, and I have helped um, the ECE department. At the time, this was in the early 80s, electrical and computer engineering had just been kind of named computers, it feels like had just been invented. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, they had been invented much earlier, but the, the personal computer had just been created. And uh, it was the most popular of the seven or eight disciplines within electrical engineering. And today they call it the ECE department. So it's actually still a thing, even though many people think of electrical engineering as people that do power systems. There's others that do telecommunications, others that do chips. I actually did a combination of chip design and software design, so um, very much around computers and computer architectures. So how did you take that background and now just jumping into, you co-founded a company back in the 90s? Yeah, so actually we I am a co-founder with a partner named Bob Duncan. He was also an engineer from UT. Uh, he and I didn't meet at UT. We met at Arthur Anderson and Company. So my my career went into the consulting division okay. uh, right out of school in 87. Went to work at Arthur Anderson in their d- division that was consulting at the time. And within a year, they ne- renamed it Anderson Consulting. I was in the consulting industry for about five years before I went full-time into the company that Bob Duncan and I co-founded we actually formed it in like on December 28th, 1990. We're in our 30th year with that business. But uh, we started that company, which is a, it started as a leather, upholstered, upholstered leather furniture manufacturer. Today, it's still an upholstered furniture manufacturer. It's both leather and fabric. But I used the engineering background really to do s- process design and systems design uh, at Arthur Anderson or Anderson Consulting. Uh, our clients were Fortune 500 companies that typically had products in manufacturing, and we did a combination of productivity improvement for their process design and and systems design in terms of helping them implement systems that supported their operations. And so during that five-year window when I was doing consulting, uh, my partner Bob actually had the opportunity to work in an industry at a client uh, that was in furniture. And that company, many of you may not remember today unless you're over, um, probably over 40 years old. Uh, the company was formed, I think, in 81 or 82. And um, they were one of the leaders in leather upholstery. They were vertically integrated. They were called the Leather Center. 
They were Carrollton-based and had a manufacturing operation in Carrollton and distribution into the just their own stores. They were vertical throughout the United States. They, in the early days, in the early 80s, when they leather was just becoming popular from Europe, it was very popular in Europe, not very po- common in America. They and a few others sort of led the market. And that's what gave us the idea. We saw a niche. We saw opportunity where furniture retailers didn't have the capabilities of a quick ship manufacturer like Leather Center to serve their needs. And Leather Center wasn't selling to independent retailers. So at that time, the the dominant company was Natuzzi out of Italy, and they were 12 to 24-week delivery. There were some companies out of the Carolinas that were all 12-week delivery, and Leather Center was two-week delivery. And a lot of the processes at Leather Center were set up by Arthur Anderson. And so that was that was the genesis of American Leather, which is the company that Bob Duncan and I co-founded. And it's been, you know, like I said, 30 years since we started the company. And it's been it's been a great story on how we've grown that company and um, continue to grow it even uh, post-recession. And, and uh, eventually we made some acquisitions as well. But a lot of organic growth for 26 of the 30 years. And I want to get into that. But before I do... Can you walk me through like what system design and process design, like how does that even happen? Is that, is that a, can you give a short answer to? Sure. And Arthur Anderson, they used a system called Method One, which was a methodology to document things. Um, and so multiple teams could, could come in and plug and play, um, whether you were designing a process or dry, designing a computer system. We had methods for writing everything down, coordinating functional designs and technical designs and doing coding. Well, as an engineer, we would take that a couple of steps further, not just to computer systems, which was what Arthur Anderson was good at, but take it to taking any process within a company. And I I mentioned that I worked with manufacturing companies. In a manufacturing company, they have processes on their floor. They have processes, whether it's shipping, receiving, manufacturing, packaging, other things, we would take those processes, sort of write them down, document them, flowchart them, and then try to develop methodology around that to make those processes repeatable, mm-hmm. make them mistake-proof, um, make them teachable, trainable, um, and then get these companies to be able to uh, to both simplify and um, make processes more efficient and eventually take them all the way to automation. And the automation can come with robotics and material handling, but also into the data automation, the, the uh, handling of the data in and out of the processes. And so all of that takes effort and, and the methodology. You know, people ask me all the time, well, you're an electrical engineer, you never get to work as an engineer, and that's not exactly true. Mm-hmm. I actually have the benefit of this background in in a lot of the things I did for the clients, eventually for American Leather, and again at Trinity. Um, and I know you know a little bit about what we do at Trinity. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but we've used methodology to make our processes repeatable and uh, make them scalable. And yep. at American Leather, we took it to an extreme. We We developed a process to make product internal to our manufacturing in, in about a week. At Leather Center, we'd actually got it down to about a day 
But at American Leather, because we have a more varied set of products and we weren't just selling to our own stores, we took it down to about four days internally and we took it to about two weeks externally. So when a customer would send in the order, we would put the order in backlog, get it scheduled into production. From when it released into production to when it shipped, it was about a week. And, and from the customer's viewpoint, it was about two weeks. So because we had a few days of backlog. Right. And so, again, the, the process is designing a process is exactly what what I mentioned. But it's, there was a methodology around it and engineers you know, are, are good at, at making things very uniform and consistent and repeatable. And it works for any type of process and not just a manufacturing process. Is that something that you think that like why some businesses have a tougher time than others is they never really nail down the process? It's absolutely why businesses don't scale yep. without chaos. And I'll use a simple example. The most common example that that consumers would understand is that of a franchise model. And I'll take something like McDonald's. You know, you go to the drive through and you tell them what you want. They've got a menu of 100 items and then even within the items, a few of the items, let's say a hamburger, you can say leave off the pickles or add add extra ketchup, whatever. And by the time you pull around, pay, and get to the second window, the product's ready. <laughs> and and there's, you know, I don't know, 1,600 or 16,000, I'm not sure. It's some, some big order of magnitude of McDonald's around the world. And I guarantee each of those McDonald's is not getting to decide how to go from the order to the delivery in 90 seconds or 120 seconds on their own. They're all following the same process. Yep. And that process was designed initially, you know, on how to take the order and, you know, put it onto a small ticket. Eventually it was figured out how to punch it into a computer because computers didn't exist in the 60s or whenever they started McDonald's. Eventually it went all the way to the automation where some piece of equipment made a decision on where to move hamburger patty uh, to a second station and so forth and so forth. And so by the time they hand it to you, they pushed a button and um, there's been multiple manual processes that became documented and uh, set up and then automation that was created around it. And uh, the combination uh, should produce the same outcome over and over and over thousands of times a day. And is there any kind of common thread like um – how you create a culture where people that are involved in the process, no matter kind of where they are in the organization, feel compelled to keep making the process better. I feel like in small businesses a lot, you'll hear, you know, people be like, well, I knew how to do it better, but this is how we've always done it. And so like, this is how we do it. How yeah. do you build a, how do you build that into the culture? Well, it's a, it's a great question. You know, 30 years into it, well, actually, as we started the business, I thought five years into it, everyone would do what we did. We were a pretty open book. We developed what we did at Leather Center. Then we took it and created a company around it. And we've been open book from the beginning. We give tours to friends, industry participants, competition. We put videos of our some of our processes on our website. And the assumption would be that everyone could do it. Well, you hit on the issue about how do you build a culture around doing it a certain way. And we had the benefit of creating the company with its DNA set up around quick ship manufacturing. And there are plenty of places in the, in the setup of the, d the processes and the design of the processes where we do things to eliminate going backwards on our quick ship manufacturing. I won't get into all the technical terms, but 
you know, in manufacturing, there's basic concepts of batching, setups for a batch. We actually designed our processes from the beginning to have no batching or the minimal amount of batching we needed in cutting to get yield. Uh, but most of the processes don't have batching. And to get there, we had What's to What's batching? Batching is where you decide to make a hundred of the same thing okay. back to back. Because it's faster to make a hundred of the same thing than to make one thing, then make a different thing, then make a different thing. Got it. And it's a little bit like the McDonald's. If they were just serving one kind of hamburger, they could make them fast. You wouldn't know if it was really ordered for you. But we don't batch anything. And we don't take a big backlog and then group all of a given product and then run them all together, which is what most manufacturers in the world do. So to eliminate batching, because batching was created based on the concept that you have a setup, you want to amortize the setup over a lot of units. Well, if you don't have the ability to amortize the setup, you either eat the inefficiency of the setup or you eliminate the setup, which is what we did. And you know, when we started the company, there was no CN, well, there was very little use of CNC computer numerically controlled automation equipment because they automatically take away a lot of batching. We had a lot of manual processes. And so we simplified all these things. And over time, we evolved and added more and more automation. When a customer sees our plant today, they, they look in and they say, oh, you can do this fast and you can do all these varieties because you got all this equipment. And that's not really the truth. Yeah. The DNA of of how we designed the processes to not have batching and to not have uh, setups was the issue. And the other companies out there that want to change to our methodology, their DNA is wrong. They can't turn IBM into Apple because the DNA is not the same. And so to come to take an old line manufacturer in North Carolina and make it like American leather. And I say old line, you could have a company started 20 years after us is still old line if they started under those methodologies. Right. And so we really have built a company and it's it takes involvement from my partner, uh, Bob, who's more involved in the business than I am. Um, as he's the chairman and he was CEO until I think maybe four years ago. He still has to, you know, make course corrections at times when they get off track and they forget about the DNA issues, uh, how to avoid going the wrong way on batching or in, on setups. And, and those are just simple terminologies that we use. But as the company's gotten more computerized, more automated, there's still basic decisions that have to be made because guess what automation is really good at? It's really good at doing a variety of things, but it's also even better at doing a whole lot of the same in, in stack cuts or in, you know, in very automated cuts. And we have to limit, we have to keep from, from going there. And so it's just, it's hard. You still have to, to use um, what you know to be true and that's where no one's been able to to replicate what we've been able to do. So 30 years into it, we have more companies that are down under six weeks. Yep. But we don't have anyone at two weeks. And it's and, been that way since the 80s? Yeah. Well, we started the company in 1990. Okay. And, and you started from scratch. You didn't buy an existing We company. did not buy an existing company. We had to develop our own products, our own manufacturing, our own distribution, and eventually our own R&D capabilities. We are now a market leader in not only the quick ship um, manufacturing, but we're also a market leader in uh, use of innovation in the mechanisms on our sleeper sofas, our recliners, and certain other things. A lot of people just assumed we would be able to do the two-week delivery when we we're small, but we'd never scale. And so that is a difference. A lot of companies can find a way to brute force something, 
but when they scale. So we've scaled from a startup in 1990, and the company across its three primary divisions is around 300 million plus wow. in revenues. Now, um, somewhere between 150 and 200 million is done in our largest plant. And that plant is the one that has the real DNA of American leather. Yep. Uh, our holding company holds the other two companies and those are very efficient, but they don't have the two-week delivery that we do. Right. Why? Because we bought a 47-year-old company Got years ago. <laughs> and we're we're implementing individual processes, but we can't, you can't unplug the DNA. Really? So you can't buy a company and just go plug in your process into that existing not, business? Not a large company. Yeah. That was a hundred million. One of the companies is in North Carolina. It's a hundred million plus company. Got it. 50 years old now. We bought it in 2016 and, and we're, we're making progress. Yep. And there are parts of our DNA we can eventually get over there. So maybe we're going through some gene mutation um, slowly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. And, um, but it was not complicated for us because we started that way and our culture is set up around it. It is a, a very a critical reason why companies can't catch other companies, even if they know what they're doing. Yep. Was there like, is there like a weekly or a monthly meeting where it's like, Hey, let's talk, talk about the process. How, Cause you're never done refining it. As soon as you fix one thing, you're kind of fixing the next thing. So you you asked earlier about this concept of continuous improvement right. and, and making adjustments. We didn't invent that. You know, we were studies of the Toyota production system, which was a de system developed in Japan by Toyota. And they had a lot of methodologies around continuous improvement and the auto industry and then other manufacturing industries eventually picked up a lot of those methods and and brought them over and improved on them and refined on them. Toyota set the standard. We didn't set the standard. We we have set the standard within our little industry, but the continuous improvement process is part of that DNA in American Leather, and it's part of the DNA of a lot of companies. Right. Um, the company does have very strict accountability at a level that other companies don't. Companies that batch, for example, may not um, get a product through the, their entire manufacturing process for four weeks where we may get it through in four days. And if we try to make an improvement, we're going to see the effect of the improvement or the, the bad effect of the improvement, attempted improvement in four days versus four weeks. Yep. And so our cycles of learning are faster. And um, if you have a continuous improvement process, you want short, shorter, quicker feedback loops. Right. And um, some of you may understand... Uh, Agile methodology that's common in software development now. Uh, it wasn't common when I was in school, but it does short sprints and certain other things to get continuous improvement and right. get feedback faster. So switching a little bit within within the same storyline, but in 06, you decided to take on private equity. So it was a homegrown business for the first 16 years. Um, <clears throat> well, it's so American Others been a organically grown business with very sophisticated management team from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But um, about 1999, so nine years into it, during the dot-com boom, I was watching friends of mine, at, mm -hmm. you know, what looked like making billions of dollars <laughs> on paper. Yeah. And it got really kind of frustrating to be running a company that was growing, you know, organically at, you know, what started at 100% growth rates down to 20 or 30% growth rates. 
I made the decision that I wanted my next career, didn't know when it would be, but it, my next career to be private equity. Right. That was 1999. I didn't know how to get into private equity since I hadn't started as an analyst. I was an engineer and uh, most private equity guys start as analysts and work in a fund shop. So I didn't know how to get there, but I knew I wanted to get there. And so I picked a, a path that I saw some of my friends who were in private equity go to, which was get a CFA designation. So in 99, I self-enrolled in a in a three-year self-study program called the CFA. I, I don't. I think they called it something else then, but it's the CFA designation that you earn over three levels. So I went into that program, and during that, uh, the second year of the program, I met my partner, Dan Meter, who is my co-managing director at uh, Trinity today. He and I were just friends. We became friends. We didn't know how we were going to work together, and I continued running the business. The dot-com boom came and went, Mm-hmm. Then the tech boom came and went, and Trini- and American Leather was still growing, and the markets got really, really heated in 2005. And my partner and I decided to look at alternatives, well, look into options to sell the business. The business right. had gotten to a certain size. It had gotten well beyond the target size of when we started the business in 1990. You know, we all as entrepreneurs have a number in our head. And I always thought if I got to this certain number, I would want to sell. Well, we blew past that number in that time period when I was uh, going slow. I I did get married, did have three kids, Mm. had the benefit of starting a family and not being on the road as a consultant, which was very important to me. But I had something more. I had more fire in my belly than than, um, running a single company. And um, so around 2005, we got to the point where we had an opportunity to maybe sell the business. It was beyond, way beyond. It was about four times more in profits than we'd ever expected to get to before selling it. And we thought about selling it. And when we studied the debt market in 2005, it was really heated. In 2006, we decided to recapitalize the business without selling it. And we did it 100% debt, no equity. So we didn't really sell the business to anyone else. We, mm-hmm. we shifted the ownership around. We had actually added a third partner in 1997 and in 2006, during the recap, we bought him out, still a great friend today, and he's still an investor with me today at Trinity, but we bought him out. Bob and I shifted our ownership, and I decided to step out of the day-to-day, and that was in 2006. It was August of 2006. It didn't take me more than a couple of months uh, before Dan Meter convinced me to become a advisor on a fund he was going to raise. Then he convinced me to be a partner on the fund, and then before you know he decided he convinced me to be a partner at uh, his company called Trinity Advisory Group, which was the predecessor to Trinity Private Equity Group. Got it. And that's when I stepped out, um, stayed on as interim CFO, stayed on as vice chairman and uh, second largest shareholder in the company, ended up uh, starting what became in 2008 Trinity Private Equity Group. We actually did start raising that fund. It was a manufacturing fund. Of course, that's why he wanted me on the on the fund advisory committee and then eventually as a partner in the fund because of my manufacturing background. And we were in the middle of raising that fund uh, during the downturn. And then when the downturn started in late 2008, um, we had already closed one or two deals outside of a fund, but we were about to close another deal and then things changed and we stopped the fundraising. And within a few months, we decided to go into real estate. And how did you like all of a sudden decide to go into yeah, real estate? So that, and that's a great question. 
There was one element of the story of American Leather I didn't say, and I'll give the 20-second the version, but in our business plan at American Leather, we identified a trend that was absolutely on, on the mark. The trend was, I, I mentioned that upholstery in the 80s wasn't, wasn't dominated by leather, but it wasn't, it had a lot of, there was a lot of leather and it was a strong part of the market in Europe. When we started American Leather, we identified the fact that leather was 10% of upholstery in America and it was 40% of upholstery in Europe. We identified the trend that it was going to go from 10 to 40, toward 40. Didn't know how far it'd go, but we know it'd go. Our first 10 years in American Leather, we had this huge tailwind because everyone that got into leather in the, in the 90s all did well. We thought we were doing really well, but it turns out everyone else was doing well too yep. because the trend was our friend. It gave us a, a tailwind. Well, in 2008, I clearly identified I couldn't value operating businesses when revenues were falling. Right. But I could value real estate on replacement cost. Didn't mean I wanted to pay replacement cost, but I could at least establish a value that wouldn't just uh, evaporate. And so our ability to go into real estate was really driven by this ability to guess at what the bottom might look like. When, you know, where operating companies could go to zero because their revenues were falling dramatically, um, real estate typically, you know, falls 30, 40% in big downturns. And we didn't know how big the downturn was going to be, but we knew probably at more than a 30 or 40% discount to replacement costs, there was real value and you'd eventually get paid if you waited. And so that's what, um, caused me to go into real estate. Uh, my partner, Dan, really wasn't focused on real estate. We were a company trying to buy operating companies, invest in operating companies. And it's not that neither of us knew about real estate. I had personal investments in the real estate side just as an LP with other people, but I hadn't been a GP or involved in development directly. But I liked the fact that I could establish value and the banks were in trouble. They were selling off assets new projects, development projects were being done when uh, construction costs were low. Of course, the hard part in the construction projects was debt, mm -hmm. but it wasn't hard to put together deals on distressed assets. And so we started in 2008, didn't get any deals done in eight because the banks were so skittish. But by 2009, we got some deals done. I think we got three or four done in 2009. One of them was probably Adam's deal. So one of them was, uh, yeah. And Piazza Lofts or Piazza Condo. Piazza Siena. Um, and it was a condo conversion. And the bank gave it to us for $70 a foot. I think the cost in those deals was between 140 and 210 I'm not sure. can't remember now. But the bank, uh, we bought it for even less than the bank debt. Yep. And that was one of many deals. And, and I know Adam's one of the people that introduced me to you yep. uh, three or four years ago. Uh, but we ended up doing a couple of other deals that year. And then in 2010, so it, it took us a year to get, get our legs under us. We believe we found something and we didn't have legacy assets. So we weren't in our own distress, right? And so my, my friends and family became my investors. And um, I had taken some of my capital from the recap in 06 and started writing checks myself. Uh, friends and family joined me. And by 2010, I think we did six or eight deals. And so how did you get out to the community, having not been in real estate, that, hey, I'm a real estate guy now, bring your deals to me? So it was hard. Like, how did Adam <laughs> find you? <laughs> it was uh, through another friend that introduced us on a whim. And it's funny, I'm not even sure he intended to introduce us. The guy was 
a guy named Joe Payton from Austin. I still remember him. He he was up in Dallas one day, invited me for lunch. He also knew Adam. He invited Adam for lunch. I think he was just checking in with us, but Adam and I became friends. And yep. before I know it, I'm showing him my deal and he's showing me his deal. I I don't think I actually went out to the world and said, hey, I'm a real estate guy now. I said, I'm an investment guy. There's identified real estate opportunities and I backed operators like Adam. And so I I put Adam up as a real estate guy. Yep. And I said, we're the capital guys and we are going to um, put the underwriting together, put the capital together and share in profits with sponsors. And that was really our model. And was that the model school. from day one? It was the, the current model the, today is that it's the same. Did somebody teach you that or did you just think about it? And that's how you, you wanted I, to do it. I, I'm not going to say I invented it because I didn't, but I think the, the industry had conventions for JV equity, right? We followed into the conventions, uh, but it was our decision to be the capital provider and not the operator. Right now there's parts of our model that we did invent. Uh, we decided to do it hundred percent with individuals. Again, not something completely new, but we took it a step further. We went ahead and created a newly formed broker-dealer to get all the compliance working. We decided that once we got deals working, we would scale. And we built a platform to um, underwrite, raise capital, manage investors, and provide some high-level oversight into deals and not try to be a sponsor, not to try to build uh, a team to, to construct or build a team to operate. And here we are, so that was 2009, uh, so 11 years ago, and we have stayed with that model on the real estate side. Now, we stayed with operating companies as well, but we only average about two operating companies a year. And on the operating companies, we are the sponsor at Trinity. We um, have stayed 100% JV equity with all of our deals, with the exception of a few deals where the operator imploded on us yep. and we had to take over. And But we never went into a deal trying to trying to be the operator, but we've now inadvertently become the operator in probably six or eight deals over, over 120 transactions. God, I've got a million questions. So you get into real estate, 2009, you do six deals. Uh, three in 2009, and I think we do six or eight in 2010. 2010. A big win for you has been in the multifamily industry. It's been a great 10 yeah. years. Did you initially set out for residential, or was that just kind of what was coming your way? The very first transaction we attempted was a, was a condo uh, conversion in 2008. We didn't get the deal because of, of a variety of factors. We did assisted living, condo conversion, and... Um, some triple net retail, but then the real traction came in multifamily. Okay. So in 2010, we got several multifamily deals done and in 2011 and 12 as well. And um, you're correct. Uh, we've done over half of our total volume. So we've done um, about four and a half billion, I think, in deals <laughs> in the last 11 years. And um, more than half have been multifamily. And our fastest turns and our highest uh, internal rates of return have come in multifamily. One of the, so there's been a tailwind at multifamily. We could talk about why multifamily has been a hot industry. But I think one of the things you've been able to identify, and not just in multifamily, but since we're talking about it, we'll just stick there, are great operators. 
what is the difference between a great operator and a not so great operator within multifamily? Well, I'll tell you what we look for in operators generally is true, independent of the industry. Um, we look for people, and this is great operators for us. It doesn't mean the highest return operators, but the right. great operators for us is people that share our values. Mm -hmm. And so alignment is critical. You know, so we want to do business with people who share our values. And those values include, you know, putting our investors first, um, ha being completely transparent, being collaborative. Um, so those are the things we look for. We do look for people that have a certain amount of fire in their belly and and uh, a real desire to work hard. We want them obviously to be intelligent. Ideally, they'd all be experienced, but that's not always been the case because we've had some um, what we'll call emerging managers that were just getting getting their you know starting up and getting the, uh, their feet on the ground, um, not you know necessarily catching their stride till after they started working with us. But those are the things that are important. Now, as we've gotten further in the cycle and we've gotten more experience, we we do lean more on experience, particularly on in our sponsors who are developers. Mm -hmm. Development is harder than uh, acquisition and rehab. Um, it takes more balance sheet um, support. It takes more um, understanding of complex processes. Man, you know, development does take people that know um, what all the GCs go through and all the things that could go wrong. Development has more front-end work, as you know, in uh, permitting and entitlements and zoning. Yep. And so we've just learned some things the hard way, unfortunately, that that's, <laughs> that, that show us the difference between a great operator and a, and a not-so-great operator. The people who we've had the most trouble with are people um, who really just haven't um, held up the transparency and the collaborative nature. We're not expecting our operators to be the smartest people in the world and all have this perfect pedigree. Um, the industry's in the trillions, and so there are thousands and thousands of great operators in, in hotels, hospitality, in multifamily, and in office industrial. Each category has so many people, so many groups. So we obviously can't go vet them all, right? We're just a small group trying to find our way. But we look for those things that um, make sure that we can work together and that in tough times, you know, we'll communicate well. And then we try to learn with, the, you know, and help each other. And again, the tailwind has been the driver because some of the mistakes we made in our early deals have been saved by the market. Mm -hmm. We've had deals that have missed on budget, missed on timelines, but in a great market, um, the low cap rates have saved us. Yep. And so uh, we've averaged high 20s on the LP level returns. And um, that's partly because of that market. So yeah. again, the trend has been our friend. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than be smart yeah. in some way. And, and I think being smart enough to know it and then work with the trends is, is important because, yeah, we're not going to outsmart everyone. And we certainly aren't going to be able to go against the tide um, at all times. Now, after 120 transactions and four plus billion of, of projects, we have gotten smarter in a lot of things. And I think uh, later in this cycle and going into the next cycle, we'll be able to do things well. We'll be able to create value in development, for example, 
irrespective of of just a super trend. You know, we're not paying for market beta development. We're creating alpha, and our or should say our sponsors are creating alpha. We're just um, supporting them with capital. Mm-hmm. So, in short, for listeners, me, Chris Powers, or Fort Capital has a deal. We go put it under contract. We go to Trinity and we say, we need equity for this deal. They look at it. They tell us, yes, we're in. And they become our equity partner on the deal. And they are our partner from start to finish. I mean, that is in short what the business model is. And you raise that money from a group of, I guess now thousands of people that invest with Trinity. That's correct. What Chris described is correct. We we become the capital partner for them, start to finish on the project, we raise the capital. Um, you know, typically ninety percent of the equity capital they put in ten, and we raise the ninety percent from a group of several thousand investors and prospects. We have probably eleven or twelve hundred active investors with us right now, and another uh, just under a thousand people that have said, "Hey, I want to look at your deals, and I want to see your deals as they come out from time to time." And uh, those investors will call prospects, but they are people that know us. Um, they know um, our track record, and they have um, asked to be, to see our deals. We don't openly solicit um, or advertise for investors. We just take these investors as referrals, right, one by one from the existing investors. Investing in real estate is obviously different than investing in businesses. Um, you only do two businesses a year. You've done four and a half billion in, in real estate. What is, I guess there's a, a few questions I have, but if I was a business looking to take on private equity, what would you maybe tell me ahead of time of things I should be thinking about before even thinking about taking on private equity? Businesses that want to take capital from private equity, whether it's growth capital or you know maybe sell part of the business to, to a group, they really need to think about it two or three years before they're ready. And the things that they need to do, the starting thing is to clean up their books, get their personal expenses out of the business. Don't don't try to live out of the business. Um, they should uh, make sure everything's handled, uh, you know, in a clean and, and auditable f- format. Uh, get their books and records uh, for three years, audited if they can, but really get them organized and clean and, and not commingled. Um, it is also important to think about um, getting your systems and processes in place along with your management teams. You know, when private equity comes in and we're lower middle market, we work with founder run companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking for companies that's, that probably need some help with systems or management or maybe moving to a new manufacturing plant if they're a manufacturer. We just don't want them to need all three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 can't come in and and help with all three. That's not our style. Yep. We can help with one, sometimes two. But so they need to they need to look at themselves in the mirror and see um they have to get their books and records in in order, but they have to probably solve one or more of the other issues so that they are in a position to scale. We like to see the founder stay with the business. Um founder-run businesses need the founders to stay longer through the first transaction. Um, the second transaction typically would be when private equity sells to other private equity, the expectation of the founder being involved isn't necessarily there. I didn't know that. Yeah, but in the first transaction to private equity, 
founder's got to stay, he's got to roll 10, 15, 20, and sometimes as much as 30%. We're closing a transaction this month and the founders run rolling 25%. And are your time horizons the same as real estate? Are you looking for an exit three, five, seven years or different so, each situation? Great questions. Because we're fundless, um, we have more flexibility than most. A fund group will always say, you know, our time horizons are four or five years. Um, we have the flexibility to do what makes sense for the business and the people, the associates, the customers. And so we can look at each deal differently. But absent other forces, five years is our desire. But here's where the, there's a difference. You know, if we build a 200-room hotel, when we're through building 200 rooms, we're not going to magically build 300, right? We're not going to build an extra 100. Our value creation will be in one one long process. We can incrementally grow the value a little bit beyond that, maybe run it a little tighter, grow the revenues a little bit. But with an operating business, that's not the case. We might buy an operating business at 20 million revenue, say we're going to grow it to 40 million, but we could grow it to 60 or 80. There's no limit to where it could go, whereas that hotel couldn't get any bigger. So once we, we've run out our, our investment thesis in the hotel, we can't create a lot of value. We can get a little bit of yield. With an operating company, if we get to the fifth year and we're just growing and growing um, and we're producing the kinds of returns that keep everyone excited and management's excited, we can keep going. And so we're not bounded. And so if we need to go 10 years instead of five, that's not a problem for us. We would maybe give opportunities for investors to, to change out if, they, if some of them needed to get out or we may uh, get to a point of refinance and get them a lot of their capital back so they're not trapped but uh, then keep distributions going. So we're we're very flexible in that standpoint. And buying a business is a lot more of an organic process uh, than buying a piece of real estate or developing a piece of real estate. And like a founder-run business, and maybe this is just me, but I, I envision these businesses that um, obviously highly reliable on the founder. They're a big component of why the business is successful. They've grown this without probably a lot of, you know, having to get permission, even having a board um, what is, what is the mentality of a founder that has lived that life that then takes on private equity? Do they continue to just make decisions? Like what, what is that transition of life without parents to now life maybe with, with a board, with a board or parents or some other authority in the mix? Is that easy so for most founders? It's, um, so it's, it's a life with accountability, um, and so, you know, some companies have been, even founder-run companies have been run with a board, some without. Some have been run where they allow management to have ownership, which then creates accountability. It's when the founder was the 100% owner and could do anything he wanted, he or she, their change is typically difficult. I, I, in my own estimation, probably one out of three founders don't make that that transition well, and they have trouble with it. And that's why some companies, after their private equity run, two years later, the founder's out. But we really want the founder to stay. We know that the founder is the reason the business is successful. And we want to help the founder get the business to be autonomous, get the board to be um, giving the guidance that, that the founder and the management team need, help to allocate resources, and really get them in a position to have a complete exit at the second by private equity groups that buy businesses that were already private equity backed, they know that typically the founder issues are no longer the drivers. Now, right. there may still be some remnants, 
Um, but we typically buy in when the founder is the primary shareholder. And so we take that hair and there's a valuation difference. Um, the second transaction is usually at a higher valuation right. on a multiple of EBITDA basis than the first transaction. And it's uh, for a combination of things, but a lot of it's because of the fact that it's so dependent on a single founder. Um, you know, you, you asked the question, you know, what should people be thinking about? They should be thinking about all of those things, including living under uh, the guidance of a board. What's it like to live under the guidance of a board? I guess you haven't done that. I you have know, not. You know, we, we at American Leather did that from the beginning, and that was just a choice we made. Did you pay people even when you were just getting started? So when we first start, started up, we actually um, had two gentlemen that had a furniture business, and we let them make an investment. It was a modest investment, but we used them as board members until we brought that third partner on. And I think they still stayed on as board members, um, but we always had a board of some sort. When it was three partners, the three partners were the majority of the board anyway, but um, it was still accountability to each other. I haven't in any of my businesses ever been 100% owner or even be a, a greater than 50% owner. So I've always had some level of accountability, even if it's just to another partner. Right. Well, I guess this is probably a loaded question, but I'll ask it anyway. How, um, in a short answer, does a business go from being founder run to not founder run? So it's... It's a combination of things, but it's the board and the development of a management team are some of the elements. Once there is the ownership concentrated in a group other than the founder, it's going to go through a lot of transition. And so in that trend, the typical private equity group invests into the company and buys north of 51%. And the founder goes from being you know, uh, control or greater than 51 to being less than 51. And they don't get to make independent decisions. And so if the business can continue to grow and the management team can evolve under that scenario, it becomes apparent in the numbers. That's one thing that I've learned over over the long haul. The numbers never lie. Yep. Uh, they are an objective way of measuring the business. And, you know, there's a lot of subjective factors and how happy your customers are, how... Ca- happy your employees are, but over the long run, um, the numbers are very objective. And if you have growth, it's shown in the top line and bottom line. And if you create value, it's shown on high returns on equity or returns on assets, return on sales. And those numbers are, are real. And if a company can go from um, having the founder owning the majority of the business to not owning the majority of the business and still show growth in the right numbers, it eventually gets to the point where it deserves to be uh, looked at independent of the founder. So let's say I sell my business to you. Things are going well. I've rolled 30% of my equity in. Then two years into selling you the business, things aren't going so well. The board decides the issue isn't as much the the company or the industry. It's, it's just being run poorly. But I've rolled 30% of my equity into the new deal. What happens? There is typically a methodology by which the founder can be relieved of his responsibilities as, let's just say, CEO, mm-hmm. independent of his ownership in the 30% and independent of his role as a board member. So, you know, the founder has a couple of hats and and it is very common for the founder to be replaced as CEO, but not, you know, be bought out. Now, there's also provisions that can be organized in the documents to allow a full buyout. 
in conjunction with that. But if you're going to have to go recruit another CEO, you're going to have to come up with some incentive package that'll work. And if that owner, if the previous CEO or founders hogging up a bunch of the equity, is there some mandate that they must sell it, some or transfer no, some? No, it's, it's not about having the equity. It's about the compensation. So I'll just use a simple example. You know, if a CEO has got a market level salary, the new CEO that comes in will have to get a market level salary. And, and if the, the company's mature enough to pay the market level salary, it may or may not have to pay any equity to... Um, through options to the new CEO. And so a founder, great example you used, 30% role. It's not uncommon on a founder-run company, but a new CEO brought into a company, if it's a small to mid-sized company, one to three to 5% is the typical CEO equity um, option plan. Got it. Yeah, because the management team as a whole, eight to 15 is the range that private equity tends to use total. And the CEO is the largest, CFO might be the second, COO and CFO similar, but um, yeah, one to to three to 5%, depending on the size of the company. The rest is market level comp. Got it. Significant base, uh, big bonus upside based on uh, financial performance and and other metrics. But that 30% is not needed and you don't have to carve it out of that 30. The management options will dilute everyone and and the the part, the CEO, the the founder can keep his 30% and not be CEO and still make a lot of money off that 30%. I'll, I'll be very honest. I have done the two recaps. In the second recap, my partners and I, uh, including some of the early shareholders, including the two outside board members, we we rolled 30%. Right. And that 30% is worth more than the 100% was at that yeah. date. Yep. So it's just the growth in the business. And I've been out since 2006, not 2012, which is when we sold the, the 70%. And um, I've done really well as a shareholder and board member, but I haven't taken a big salary out of that business. I haven't taken a, a salary, really just a board fee, uh, but I've taken distributions over the, the since 2006. So it's been 13, 14 years of significant distributions plus growth in value of my equity. I just think it's a really cool deal that you were a founder, you grew a company, you've been in the shoes, and now your life is working with founders and people that were in your shoes and not just one of them, but you have a, you've built an incredible organization of, I would imagine you have 30 to 40 sponsors, CEOs running companies that you get to interact with and learn from. And we're, we're not quite that big. We have, I think we have, a, we've had about 50 total relationships, but but 35 of those have been sponsors on the real estate side. Okay. We've had about 15, 15 or 16 management teams um, that we partner with. We have 11 currently uh, in our portfolio on the operating company side. So, What's a question that you asked before investing in a business today that you didn't ask the first time you invested in a business? So investing is, is one of those things that teaches you through life lessons People can tell you all kinds of things and you won't believe them until you do it and you burn your finger, you know, hopefully you don't lose your arm. There's a lot of things we've learned the hard way. Today, I'm looking a lot more at uh, the quality of earnings and the recurring nature of the revenues. You know, the service-based businesses that have had the least recurring revenue have been the most challenging for us. Uh, the The customer acquisition costs are, are much higher than we expected and the internet's made it even more challenging. Um, so today, you know, 
on operating companies, we are looking really hard at the quality of the earnings and the quality of the recurring revenues. Um, and then the valuations reflect those items. You know, companies that are purely service-based get a much lower value. Uh, companies that are more hunter models where you got to wake up every day and, and sell new orders get lower valuations. Companies where you've got the recurring revenue or you've got contractual revenue, like a software business, get the highest values. And so we've learned better how to judge those issues. And it it isn't something that we invented or learned. We learned the hard way. You learned through trial, trial and, error. and error. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I would think that I was smart enough 15 years ago to not need to do that. But um, and, and I know you have young kids. I have, I have much older kids and there's just some things in life you have to let the kids learn. And <laughs> I guess I had to, uh, to, to go through that process as well. You did mention something a moment ago that is important. Most of the people in private equity haven't started companies. And so a lot of them start as analysts and go all the way up. I have an advantage where I can talk to a company founder and I can relate to them at an eye to eye level because I've been on their side of the transaction. I've been on their side of building a company. I've been on their side of building a culture. And I understand what it's like to sell controlling interest in your baby. Um, I understand, you know, both the financial and, and emotional issues. Um, and so I have, I have an advantage there. Now there are people in private equity that, um, so a CEO that works with us, when we finally sell their company the second time or we, we buy it the first time we sell it, a lot of them that really work with us well, they want to come into private equity. And they, they are like me, have been on both sides of the transaction. And so it's very common, uh, you know, at age 45 or 50 for a founder that has sold their company to private equity and then sold their company again, decides to step into private equity. I'm going to ask some personal questions. Um, is there anything that you can remember in your career that was like a huge challenge and that you'll never forget and what <laughs> it was and how you dealt with it? Well, you know, I've been pretty blessed. I've been self-employed since I was 25 and I haven't had a lot of adversity in my business career, but starting up the business and trying to raise money in 1990 was really, really tough. There was... And it didn't matter what you put in front of the banks and how much they asked you to change your numbers and you change them and still work on paper. They would, they would just look at you and smile when you're 25 and <laughs> kind of, they'd never say yes. And it didn't matter. We must've visited with three dozen banks, taking meetings, taking their feedback, coming back to them with adjustments to our projections based on their feedback. It was very frustrating. I couldn't understand why they kept saying no. And, you know, of course to hear it, it, at age 54, I can understand completely why they were saying no, because I was 25 and my partner was 26 and it was a recession. And um, and so you, you ask, how did you deal with the, the adversity? And the answer really is persistence. Yeah, I didn't give up. My partner didn't give up. We eventually started the business with a, without debt. But then, you know, once we made any progress whatsoever, we took SBA debt and we did it in 93, then again in 94, and we maxed out with the SBA program. Back then, the limits for that uh, 7A program were a million dollars. Today, they're five million. And it was very frustrating, but you just don't give up. Yep. I've found over the last 30 years that, you know, persistence was, was a lot of it. Um, getting good people around me was probably the other 
the other half. Well, that might answer this question, but if you had to sit your 21-year-old self down and give him advice of what he's about to go over the next 30 years of his life, what would you tell him? You mean my my own 20? So I have a 24-year-old, 22-year-old. Yeah, you could say, what what, what would you give your 21-year-old self or your son? What advice do you give him? If I could have changed anything, I would have found real estate much sooner (laughs) 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 because real estate has been easier and faster than, than starting an operating company. But I don't know that I would have been able to do it without the operating company history. Yep. Um, you know, I have three semi-grown kids and I wish I had great advice for them. I don't. I really just don't. Um, they are uh, all doing well. They're, you know, one's completely out of school working, one's in graduate school, and the other one's a sophomore in in undergrad. And I just don't have any magic yep. uh, advice. Um, you know, there's... There's a few things here and there I wish I would have done differently, but unfortunately there aren't any shortcuts. Yep. And I guess that's one of the things, and maybe that's because I I took the high road and the long road to to getting to where I am. I didn't have a quick internet hit. I didn't have a, a tech, tech hit. Didn't create some fabulous software company um, early or late. <laughs> um, I, you know, at this point in life, I'm, I'm just hopeful that I find a bunch of 25 year olds when they're creating their great software company and I can be part of their, um, their investment, uh, partners. I so love it. I that, love it. That's what I'm looking for. But yeah. I have the advice that I gave my kids growing up, which was, you know, work hard and, and do the right thing. And they would roll their eyes at me about this and that, and they still do, but they've, they've turned out to be good kids because they've, um, you know, they've kind of stayed on the straight and narrow. There's not a shortcut that I know of other than technology moves at a much higher speed than non-technology companies. And so if if someone is in a hurry and they want things to move faster, they probably need to be in a technology business. And right. so if if one of my kids is is not patient and really wants to make something happen much faster, I'm going to tell them to go to technology but then they're going to work twice as fast and three times, maybe three or five times faster and harder because time doesn't stop for technology companies. Yep. Manufacturing businesses, even real estate development, we can't we can't make them go much faster. Right. You know, if it's going to take 18 months to build a big apartment complex, it's going to take 18 months. Yep. And with technology, you know, you can shift stuff to India and China and work around the clock with three teams and you can go three times faster. Yep. And that's kind of, I mean, that's the narrative in a lot of ways is, Speed, 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 buy it, build it, sell it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, It's not for me. most businesses are not that way. Yeah. And a majority are not. Service businesses are not. Construction, manufacturing businesses are not. I don't have uh, the desire to to run a technology company or do a startup at this point in my life, but I have the, the risk appetite to invest in startups as long as there's fine young people with the energy um, and ideas to do it. So I've been lucky enough to get to the point where I can I can take risks today that I couldn't take at 25 or 30. Um, and so I'm very happy to invest behind people in those kinds of businesses. Yeah. I always say I, every time I leave a meeting with you, I'm usually like, I want to be in your shoes. <laughs> you get to... Uh, you, you just you get to interact with a lot of people moving and shaking and it's stimulating, but 
I don't know. I feel like you get to see a lot. I do. So I, I do have one advantage. You know, you're a real estate development guy and I'm real estate development. I have one advantage over you it's because I'm not a sponsor. I get to see everyone's deals. Yep. And you will not get everyone's deals because you're a competitor to them in some way. And um, as a capital provider, everybody would like our capital. Yeah. So they're all quick to show us the deals. And as long as we don't abuse the relationship and show something proprietary between, you know, one group and another, but I can absorb the data and add it to my knowledge base. Yep. So we have a, a data bank of thousands of deals. And if you show me a deal in a particular sector in a particular part of the country, I can probably pull up five other deals from that area in the same sector and benchmark the pro formas or the actuals. Uh, and so I have, I have a lot of data that comes to me and you're right. I get to see a lot of movers and shakers. I don't get to be one. I don't You're need a mover and shaker in your own right. Well, a different version, but yeah. I get to watch these people and it's exciting. Um, and I do like it. So I, I started in consulting and I missed it during those middle years. I got a little bored. As I told you, I woke up at 99 and said, hey, I'm bored. Yep. Um, but today I'm not bored. I get to see plenty. This is kind of a fun question, but if, if we had to come back in here 10 years from now and you made a prediction on this podcast of what the world might be like in 10 years... What is something that you believe that will be uh, different about life today or something that won't have changed that I think that people think will have changed 10 years so from now? I, I'm, I'm going to start with the second part first because it's easier to answer. There's two things that won't have changed. Okay. Furniture as we know it won't have changed. Okay. We'll still sit on it. We'll lay on it. We'll sleep on it. I love it. And I love making <laughs> furniture. Real estate as we know won't have changed very much, particularly housing. We'll still need a place to live. Um, and maybe it's a little more urban. It's a little taller, a little denser, but it's still, the needs will be there. Some will have backyards, some will not, but but the real estate, the furniture and real estate won't be the same, will be the same. It won't have changed much. But I predict so much else will have changed. Cars as we know them today will have changed. We may all use cars as a service, much as we use software as a service, right? No one no one buys software anymore. They just rent it. I'm not sure we'll be buying cars in 10 years or the majority of us won't be buying cars, particularly if you live in high density areas because we won't be able to park it anymore. Yep. Um, I, think, I think the technology that drives the rest of our economy will have driven a lot of change. And, you know, something is funny in the hierarchy of needs, water, food, clothing, shelter, you know, a lot of people say, well, those won't change. Well, that's not true. Food will change. Yep. Water might be still water, but food food is evolving and it's evolving faster and faster. So I think I think food will change. You know, today we all can afford to eat out all the time and uh, at least in developed societies. And so I think experiential retail and restaurants will have changed in a lot of ways. I think um, cars will have changed. Clothing, it'll evolve, um, but everything we touch uh, with technology will have changed. And so, you know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone needed a laptop doing things. Today, more and more people don't use a laptop. Use their phone. Or They're using a, a pad or a phone. phone. And, and I think the minute we get to the point where the computers speak to us well, we won't need anything with a keyboard. And then everything changes again because then then com entire computers can fit in our glasses and our in on our wristwatch or whatever. 
because we'll speak to them. They'll they'll know what we're thinking. We'll know what we're doing. <laughs> and uh, I know that's scary, but um, I I think those changes will happen very fast. But I'm glad I'm glad to know that. Uh, well, I believe that real estate won't, and and I'm glad I'm in the real estate business. Yep, I love it. All right, my final question is: um, Do you have a favorite interview question that you ask people when they come to work for you? Something that that lets you know yes or no, or gives you deeper insight? You know, I don't have a single one, but I do have one that I do ask. I always ask people what they'd like to see their career look like, you know, 10 or 20 years forward. And, you know, what I'm always looking for is to see where they see themselves and to see how aspirational they are with their thoughts. And so my goal is to see, to get something more about them other than whether they want to work hard and make a little bit of money or make a lot of money or getting a single promotion. I want to see, you know, what is it that they're, they're looking for. And, and usually their, their career, what they, what they see themselves doing in their career um, reflects what they see themselves doing in their life. And some of them will very quickly talk about their families. Some will talk about their kids in certain ways because what they do with their career, you know, maybe um, what they want to do to support their family or their parents or their, their kids. Um, and so, you know, obviously as an interviewer, you can't ask things like, you know, they're married and how old they are and things like that. Yeah. And, but you can, you can try to get a perspective of what is it that they see themselves doing or what, what is it that's important to them? And, and that's, that's probably my favorite question. And, and I let them talk Yep. because they could take it a lot of ways. And if they don't, if they give me a dry answer, then I, then I take it a little further for them. I kind of pull them forward. Yep. But I'm looking, you know, when I hire people, I'm looking for people that are thinking beyond tomorrow. I want them to be looking out 10 years and tell me what they want. And if, if what they want isn't a fit for what the opportunity set is, then, you know, it's probably better to, to, to cut it off earlier versus later. Yep. But, um, but I like to listen to what their answers are. So. All right. Well, the good news is um, we are going to do this again in 10 years. Um, so and we'll keep a recording of this. So we will we'll see how far off I am. I didn't make any bold predictions. So. You didn't. No. But I loved the thought of uh, real estate and furniture. We're still going to be sitting on stuff and laying on stuff and, and um, living under a roof. Yep. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending time with me today on the oh, podcast. My pleasure, Chris. And thank you for the partnership and the friendship. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.